Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so honored to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. I get it. It's not always easy, but as you know by now, we're in this together, and we have some really wonderful people helping us along the way. Now, all people, young or old, experience fears or anxiety at one time or another in their lives. These feelings are often normal, even protective, because they tell us when we need to use caution, run, fight, get help. Kids may fear the dark or spiders or being separated from their parents and much more. For kids, coping with fear can even help them deal more calmly with bigger fears as they get older and get into more challenging situations along the way. But what happens when fears are more relentless, when they are more than just normal everyday anxieties and tend to stop us from doing what we want to do or what we need to do or live fully from day to day? What happens when it's not just a fear but a phobia? To figure all of this out, I'm so glad that we have on our call today, Dr. Andrea Umbach. Now, Dr. Andrea Umbach is a licensed psychologist and specializes in treating anxiety, phobias, OCD, panic, hoarding, and trichotillomania. She practices from a cognitive behavioral approach focused on increasing flexibility in thinking and making adaptive behavior changes. Dr. Umbach enjoys working with adults, teens, and kids in both individual and group formats, as well as providing trainings and presentations and consultations. She is the author of Conquer Your Fears and Phobias for Teens and the founder to the Charlotte Anxiety Consortium. You can learn more about Dr. Andrea Umbach at www.drandreaumbach.com. There's so much to learn today. We're so grateful to have you here. Welcome to Dr. Umbach to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to share this time with you and your listeners today. It's going to be wonderful. And before we get into the meat of the matter, for for those who haven't had the opportunity to read your book or learn more about you or be in your office, would you just take a moment to tell us what gets you up in the morning, what made you so interested in helping kids and families cope with fears and phobias? Well, the most exciting part of my job is when I get to see the growth and the learning that takes place when someone is actually conquering their phobia. My clients end up doing things they never, ever thought they'd be able to do, and they had something in their life that was really holding them back, and they assumed it would always be that way. But once they get into treatment, they kind of learn that change really is possible, and I just get to witness and see people accomplish their goals and knock down these obstacles, and it's so rewarding to see that. Mm, I can only imagine. Now, 
I know that there's obviously kids and, and adults alike that have all kinds of fears. And I hear that you keep talking about phobias. So I think maybe a great place to start is what is the difference between a fear and a phobia? That's a great question. Um, so I guess the, the easiest way to explain fear is that it's just a basic emotion that we all have. Um, we all want a healthy amount of fear to protect us. We need it to keep us safe from danger. Um, fear triggers this natural instinctual reaction that we need. Um, I, I thought of an example from a couple weeks ago. Uh, I looked outside and my porch was on fire. Oh my gosh. And, and my fear reaction allowed me to alert my husband and move quickly and someone kept an eye on it and we tried to get water and we tried to put it out and if the fire got bigger it would have made me move away and call 911 so we were able to take care of it but that fear I needed it to get me moving and to get me to kind of take care of it and move quickly and you know make those decisions so it's instinctual and it's protective and we need that fear and people often think of the phrase the fight or flight response mm -hmm. and that's what fear does for us we need it the problem is, is if we have too little fear or too much fear. So too little fear, we kind of, we become impulsive and too much fear, we can develop a phobia. So a phobia is, it's the Greek word for fear and it's an intense fear of a specific situation or a specific object. And our reaction is if this thing is dangerous, when really we know, you know, it's a false alarm, our reaction is excessive, the fear is very distressing and it won't go away. And the biggest part is that it starts impairing our lives. So our daily life, our academics, our social relationships. So these phobias can become all encompassing. And I like to give an example to distinguish between the fear and the phobia. If someone has a fear of spiders, they might think they're gross, they don't want to touch them, you know, but it's it's not impairing. They can kind of, you know, just kill them quickly and get rid of them or, you know, just deal with them. If someone has a phobia of a spider, they're terrified. They don't want to go outside because there's a spider. If they see one, they run and they panic and they're thinking about spiders all the time, worrying about them being around and it becomes really distressing and impairing. So there's, there's a pretty big difference between just having a kind of healthy amount of fear and then actually experiencing a phobia. Mm, it certainly does. And I mean, I think that many parents have seen their kids fearful of different things but when you have a phobia it sounds like they're almost at a standstill that there's very little you can do right there in the moment to help them so what are some common phobias that many kids and teens might have or that come into your office well, we actually distinguish five specific phobias um, in our diagnostic manual, so I'll tell you about those five. The first one that's really common is an animal or insect phobia. So you probably know people that um, have phobias of dogs, of snakes. Mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of bees. The dog, I definitely have seen that. Yep. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so lots of different animals and insects. The other category is natural environment. So we think of this as people that have phobias of heights, oh. of water, of storms and weather, of darkness. So these things are in our environment, um, kind of natural environment category. The next one is situational things. So this could include driving or flying or elevators, 
bridges and crowds. There's lots of different situations that we find ourselves in. I'm sure you've heard of people that, you know, feel very trapped in closed spaces, those kinds yes, of things. right, sure. <laughs> and then um, a, another common one we hear about a lot is our fear of shots and doctors and oh, blood. Sure. Sure. Yeah, we, we think of this as our injury kind of um, category. And then they have this last just other category that can include, I have a lot of people now that have a fear of vomiting, um, people getting afraid of getting hurt, sometimes afraid of clowns. There's oh, the, yes. the clown the one. I've heard that one. <laughs> yeah, the categories are kind of endless. And what I tell people a lot is it's not so much about the content of the phobia or the category that you fit into, because you really could have a phobia about just about anything. And a lot of times I'll, in my book, you could kind of see a list. I have a lot of celebrities um, listed and kind of the phobias that we've heard that they have. And you'll see that some of them seem kind of uncommon. Um, it is it is known, and I don't know if this is absolutely true or not, but it has been said that Oprah has a fear or a phobia of chewing gum. Huh. And Matthew McConaughey has a phobia of revolving doors. So again, they're things that we might not necessarily consider like a common phobia, but it, it really doesn't matter what the situation is. It Again, it matters how distressing it is and how impairing it is for the person. So, I mean, some of those sound bizarre and some of them sound like things that we've heard all throughout our lives. And what would cause someone to have a phobia? Um, there's, there's a couple different things. And, and usually I think about four different categories. The first one is genetic predisposition. So we know that anxiety runs in families. The thing that researchers haven't really figured out yet, though, is what exactly is is passed on or what exactly is inherited. Um, they kind of guess that it might be a certain sensitivity or personality type or certain neurotransmitters being regulated, you know, a more excited sympathetic nervous system, but they haven't really figured that part out. But we do know just from research that if you have a family member that has phobia, um, it is more likely that you could have one too. And it might not be the exact same phobia, but it could be just the category of having a phobia. So that's kind of one of the big ones on the genetic side. On the other side of things, the environmental side, a really big one is having some negative experience with the object. So a really obvious one is if I get stung by a bee, mm -hmm. you know, now I'm probably going to have a phobia. Or if I choke on a piece of food, now I might have a phobia of certain foods. So this direct, just negative experience. Not everybody has that, though. So some people, their fear actually comes from just observational learning. So they watch other people and how they react to something. And that is what causes them to start having their own fear. And I had a really good example from a client, um, a teenager, and we were talking about his phobia of thunderstorms. And at one point he told me that his fear actually started because his father would take them to hide in their basement or in their bathtub anytime there was bad weather. Oh, gosh. So, so that oh. reaction obviously caused some fear in him, and, and it got up to a certain level where it caused a phobia. So sometimes, again, it's watching other people and what they're doing and how they're reacting. Right. And then the last category is information. So we hear things. We hear what people say. We hear TV. We have lots of cautions and warnings. So I don't even have to have contact with something, but just even hearing about what it could do to me or being fearful of what might happen could cause me to react or have, have some kind of phobia. Right. I remember when my, my son, he was about two years old and we were at the park and he at the top of the slide swatted at a hornet. Mm -hmm. 
and it stung him right in the face. Oh. And he he till this to this day still is you know looking around like if he sees something flying, he's mm-hmm. very concerned. First he thought they were it was a bee, and we were had to explain no it actually wasn't a bee. Bees are so much more common around here. That's where like it wasn't a bee. It really wasn't <laughs> a bee. Uh, it was a hornet. And now he he's very interested in bugs, which you know is one great way that he kind of took it in a different direction. But if something's flying around, I see his you know his anxiety go up, and I know that it stems from that that time when he was in, in two years old. It, it was a really bad sting, and it was memorable, uh, you know, mm-hmm. even for him being so young, he still remembers that time. Um, I'm wondering if there's you know, you were talking about this father who brought their brought his kids into you know the bathtub or the basement. I could imagine that even you know a mother who is or a father is talking about uh, her her own fear of dogs or something, even if you you don't see it and it's not even on the news that that might just instill something in a child to say I'm supposed to be scared of those things. Wouldn't that be a way to transfer that? Yeah, and we we do have to be careful, and I often talk with adults about watching our own anxiety and our own phobias, and we also have to be careful of the overprotective parenting, too, because we don't want our kids to be afraid of everything. We're trying to balance this like healthy sense of fear again, so they can protect themselves. But we also have to balance it with like just logical risk taking. So it, it puts us in a hard position because we don't want to control everything and say, you know, well, I never want my kid to hear something on TV because it might cause them to have a phobia. But we do have to balance this. How do we give them accurate information and how do we make sure we're not threatening them or freaking them out so they're afraid of everything you know Mm -hmm. I think sometimes parents unfortunately use fear as a tactic um well they'll kind of say well let me warn you about how horrible this will be so that you won't do it um but that can that can create some of these fears and phobias right and experience can be a great teacher I mean I'm not saying jump off the cliff and find out that you break your legs but that when we experience some of these negative or challenging situations we learn that we skin our knee or we, you know, get a very bad taste in our mouth or it makes us throw up, whatever it is, that that's a learning experience and we won't touch that thing again because we've experienced it. So if somebody is having some kind of phobia, when is it that we should seek treatment and if we do seek treatment what is even available for these people who have a phobia so I, I think a lot of people are hesitant to seek treatment and some people don't even know that treatment is possible for a phobia I think a lot of times people just think this is here forever and there's nothing I can do about it and that's actually one of the reasons why I decided to write a book on phobias because I really wanted people to know like this is something that can change it's something that can get better um So in terms of treatment, the most effective treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, It's an evidence-based treatment, and it's kind of the first line of treatment that we go to. And the whole point of the treatment is to really pay attention to the patterns of the phobia, which we can talk about in a little bit. And we're learning skills. And in my book, I use an acronym just to kind of, um, you know, bring all the skills together. And the acronym is FACE. So the F is for flexible thinking. We want to teach, um, you know, kids, adults, whoever, how to change their thinking about the situation or the phobia. 
The A is acceptance of thoughts and emotions. So we have to learn how to accept the thoughts that pop in our head, our fears, and also accept the emotions that we feel as a result. The C is the coping skills that we want to teach them of how to handle these things when they pop up. And then the E is the exposure, which is actually facing the fear and learning how to do that purposefully. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of a whole package in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy that if you're looking for a therapist, you definitely would want to seek out someone that does this kind of therapy and that does exposures. Um, and And this is what we know to work best just on our research and we want, we want people to know that it is possible for these phobias to get better. Um, I guess your initial question was, when do we seek treatment? Um, what I usually tell adults and parents is that there are some fears that are common at certain ages with kids. So we have to be careful not to instantly assume that there's a phobia. So we know for, you know, toddlers and young kids are usually a little afraid of separating from their parents and that, you know, costumes and things might scare them. For older kids, we know they start start to worry about, you know, weather and performance and those kinds of things. So again, the biggest indicator is how distressing it is for them, how impairing it is in their life. And I always tell people to, it's better to go and ask these questions of a professional and see what the professional thinks in terms of severity and what they can do to help than not to address it at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so there's obviously some good treatment that's available. And one of the things that you had mentioned, and I just wanted to ask a little bit more about is that E for exposure. So can you give us an example of how you would use exposure to help somebody face their fear? Yeah, so basically what exposure is, is we're gradually confronting our fears and our triggers, and we're doing it without what we call safety behavior. So we're trying not to avoid, we're trying not to, if we're doing any kind of rituals, you know, we're, we're trying to actually purposely face this situation. And I like to think of it as an experiment or as in a learning experience to kind of say, well, let's see what's actually going to happen. Because the fear, when we have that fear thought in our brain, it says something horrible is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And the example I usually give to people, because I think it's one that people can understand pretty easily, is having a fear of dogs. And a lot of people think, you know, if they have a phobia of a dog, they think if they see a dog or if they're near a dog, that dog's going to bite me or it's going to hurt me or it's going to get me somehow. So what we do with exposures is we try to set the expectations of we are going to try to figure out how to approach this situation and not run away from it because we know that running away from it just keeps the cycle going. Um, It maintains the fear. It means we have to just keep repeating those safety behaviors over and over again. We have to keep avoiding over and over again. And we actually want more of a long-term fix. So our long-term fix is to do exposures, to kind of break things down. And we usually go from the easiest thing to the hardest thing. So I'm not going to grab a dog and a kid and throw them in a room and be like, good luck, (laughs) because they will freak out and they will not be okay with that right um so we talk about baby steps um and basically we're just trying to take one step closer stay a little bit longer and tolerate the discomfort and the feeling that we might have so that we can teach our brain and our body that it's not dangerous and that it's okay so that's the learning experience Um, we want to be encouraging as parents but we also don't want to force anything that they're not ready for because if you force it you're just going to accelerate their fear even more so they have to be a willing participant and what I talk about with parents is that a lot of the work has to be done 
kind of before the moment. Mm. Like I think I think about it. Um, I, I was thinking of a metaphor the other day that you don't just throw your kid into a soccer game and say, okay, we're going to teach you how to play during the game, mm-hmm. right? right. <laughs> say, okay, we're going to do some practices, we're going to teach you some simple skills, and then we'll build up, and then you'll learn how to play in a game. So a lot of the work that they're going to have to do is outside of the situation, and this is purposely practicing these exposures and baby steps. So I guess I can ask you, I, this is what I do with my clients usually, is I would say, what would be the first step if I was to try to help someone with the fear of a dog, what would we probably do first? I mean, in my mind, it's either, I would imagine it's like a picture of a dog, right? Exactly, yeah. So usually a lot of the times, you know, depending on the situation, I'm starting with pictures or videos or information, and we're kind of just trying to get them more comfortable with the content. And then as they're ready, we move up. So sometimes we'll go to PetSmart where the dogs are behind the glass, or we'll go to a park where the dogs are like 50 feet away. And then we slowly get closer and closer to the point where maybe they can pet them or be in the same room with them. And each time we're doing this, they're building up their courage. And they're also seeing, I can do this and I'm able to get through it. Now, I would, I would make sure when we're doing this that the goal is not to be perfectly calm because that's not going to happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So when a child is practicing, they're not going to be perfectly calm, and we, would, we don't want that to be the expectation. What I want the expectation to be is this is going to be uncomfortable, and this is going to be challenging, but we can do it, and we can get through it, and it's not dangerous, right, that we, yeah. we can handle this. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned is that we can't force a situation, that we can't force our kid into a really challenging situation that we know it has been very negative for them in the past or that they've had high anxiety about um, leading up to it. So I'm imagining that's a, that's a no-no, but what else is a no-no? Like what should we not be doing as parents and as educators and coaches when we see that a child has a phobia or some kinds of intense anxiety around something? Well, I, I have three main no-nos. And, and the, the sad thing is they're all very well-intentioned. So whenever people do these things, they, they really think they're helping and they're really trying to be helping that child in the moment. But it, it's just one of these things that backfires. So the first thing I think about is our immediate reactions. When we see a child, especially your own child, that's uncomfortable, our instinctual reaction is, what do I do to make it better, Mm -hmm. right? Sure. How do I fix it? How do I make the pain or the discomfort go away? And as their anxiety increases, our anxiety increases, and it starts to make everybody feel like there's a crisis. So the biggest thing is kind of checking our own reactions and saying, if I'm, what am I asking them to do? And then I myself have to model that as well. So a lot of times I tell parents, you know what, sometimes I just need to be quiet when somebody is, um, you know, doing an exposure or if they're facing something and working on it. If I'm quiet, it's actually better for them than if I'm, you know, spouting a bunch of facts at them and trying to (laughs) convince them that it's okay, (laughs) you know. And then the other thing that I can do is try to validate their experience and kind of offer them some some thoughts that might be helpful to them in terms of, you know, how do I tell you that you can get through this or that you can be brave or that, you know, again, this is a temporary feeling and we can work through it instead of feeling like we have to make this go away immediately because that's what our anxiety wants us to do. It's like fix this now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the other thing that we want to caution parents and, and educators about is reassurance. 
So the first thing that people usually say is, I promise this won't happen. (laughs) (laughs) I promise you, you'll be okay. I promise nothing bad will happen. I promise you, you won't throw up. And I want to caution adults when they do that because you're lying to them Mm. and they're going to catch you in the lie sooner or later. So I, I tell parents all the time, don't lie. If you don't know what's going to happen, then tell them you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what that's a skill that they're going to have to learn, that we aren't always going to have certainty. And there's questions that we can't answer. And there's things that we're going to have to face without knowing exactly what's going to happen. Mm, these so are reassurance, points. reassurance is a big one. The last one is accommodations. So a lot of times parents don't even realize they're doing it when it's happening. But when they look back, they realize I'm doing a lot of things to protect or fix this for my kids. I know that one. I totally (laughs) get it. So the parents that are calling ahead to make sure there's no dog at the birthday party, Mm -hmm. you know, like there's, there's so many things that are going on that we are accommodating or we're helping them avoid or we're helping them fix it. Mm -hmm. And again, like you said at the beginning is we have to give them the opportunity to actually work it out and kind of, deal with the natural consequence or deal with the feelings versus protecting them all from it. This makes so much sense to me. And I think I've, I think I've done something like that. I, I, I don't remember what it is, but I, that sounds very familiar to me. Like, Oh, yes. okay. Let me, it's also happened in reverse. I mean, I used to have a dog. I, our dog unfortunately passed away. Um, at, he was 16 years old and had a great life, but we did have a couple of friends who had some, who had kids who had some fears of dogs and, and, they would ask, you know, about the dog and where the dog was going to be and to make sure that the, you know, kept the dog away. By the time the dog got to about 15 years old, he was the calmest, you know, kindest, no bark, no jump kind of dog. And actually, some of those same people learned to like him, uh, our dog, uh, instead of being scared of him. Because, well, I mean, when you're, when you have a dog that defies all of the things that you imagine a dog would do, then that's, that becomes a pretty good thing. Um, so, but it it is, it is jogging my memory and I'm thinking, I feel like I must've done that before. And and you're not alone. Like we, um, specifically there's been a lot of, um, research on accommodations with OCD and 90 to 95% of relatives accommodate their loved one's behavior. So this is very common. So don't feel bad if you've done it. Yeah. I'm not going to feel bad. (laughs) I just, it's your point bringing to my attention. And we also had, we had Jessica Leahy on our podcast talking about the fear of failure. And, and she talks about this too, you know, making sure that you allow your child to fail, to not make all of the accommodations, to not bring the homework to school when they forgot. It's kind of like the same type of thing, mm-hmm. um, but in a, in a fear and phobia kind of a way. So a, as a parent or an educator or a coach, what are some tips that you have that allow us to support a child who is having certain fears or, or up to a phobia? What, what are we supposed to do? Well, I I think step number one for everyone is just really understanding your child's patterns. So you and your child have to understand what are the parts of my phobia and what is keeping it alive and what is maintaining it. And the biggest thing that maintains our fears and phobias, again, are usually these safety behaviors. They're usually the things that we're doing to protect ourselves in the moment, and it's short-term fixes. So it's making us feel better for that moment, but then long-term, the fear is still there. So I, again, I use an acronym to think about these different parts. I use the acronym STAIRS. 
So the first thing that we want to notice is what are the situations that are triggering? So that's our ST, um, the anxiety. So what is the event or what are the thoughts or what are the physical sensations that get the cycle going? Um, if someone has a fear of water, you know, we might say there's different situations where that comes up. So if we're at the pool or, you know, if there's a hose and they're going to get sprayed with a hose or even having their face in the shower, like there's probably going to be more than one situation where this is coming up and you have to be aware of what those situations are so you can even address them in the first place. The other thing, the A and the I, is these automatic interpretations that we have. Um, we need to know what our child's thoughts are and what their fears are, because as adults, we usually make a lot of assumptions based on our own experience of what we would be afraid of in these situations. So I've had a lot of times where the parents come in and they're like, oh, my child's afraid of this. And then once I talk to the kid, it's something totally different mm. because they're thinking about it in a different way. Um, a great example with the water is parents might assume like my kid's afraid of drowning when the reality is, is they're afraid of the back bacteria in the water, oh, right? Interesting. So mm -hmm. it might be something, you know, sometimes we guess right, but sometimes we don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then the R would be the reaction. So what is my child's reaction? What do they feel physically or what do they feel emotionally when they get in these situations? And then the last thing, the S, is the safety behavior. So what are we doing and what are they doing that's keeping this going, our escape, our avoidance? Um, you know, we have to be with someone all the time. I have to call and check in. I have to, you know, ask questions all the time to make sure everything's going to be okay. Like whatever those things are, we need to know because that gives us a guide in terms of when we practice exposures and when we talk to our kids, what do we need to be addressing and actually understanding it because every individual child is going to be a little bit different and we can't assume that I can use one blanket statement and that it's going to just change everything. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to know their specific pattern. So I think that's number one, like the most important thing to really understand. And you can use books and things to help you do that. So in my book, Conquer Your Fears and Phobias for Teens, it can walk you through that. A psychologist can walk you through that. If you, Again, if you don't feel comfortable figuring that out on your own. Uh, but it's, it's definitely like the key first thing that we have to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if a, a child is right in front of you and you know that they are going to have this fear because you're going to a place where that the dog is or it's going to be dark or there's going to be spiders in the woods or whatever it is, or maybe they're in involved in their fear already. It's already starting to happen. What can we say or do in those circumstances? Well, I think I, I think I kind of talked about this before with the soccer game that you're going to have to do the prep work. Right. So what I what I tell parents a lot of times at the beginning as as I say, okay, if naturally you end up in these experiences where you have to go somewhere and they're going to they're going to be faced with their fear and you haven't prepared for it, then you're probably going to have to do a little bit of accommodating and reassuring and avoiding to get through it. Right. But once you build up your skills and once you practice these things, then you're going to start weaning off that stuff. So the skills that we need to help them build, one is we have to validate our child's experience and we have to start normalizing these negative feelings that they're having and teaching them that they're not bad, they're not horrible, they actually have a purpose, um, we don't have to get rid of them right away. And I think a big discussion that parents have to have with their kids, a sit-down discussion, a as-we-walk-through-our-lives discussion, is constantly giving them their own self-talk of how do I tolerate discomfort. And I give parents phrases and I say, I purposely want you to use the word I so that your child can internalize it instead of you saying you. Mm. So I can give you a couple phrases 
diseases that might be helpful. That would be great. Yep. So some of them would be specifically for tolerating discomfort. Like I've made it through tough times before. Um, I don't need to let these feelings stop me. I can keep going. Um, this is an opportunity to build my strength or this is an opportunity for me to be uncomfortable. I'm stronger than I think. So there's, there's tons of these phrases that we can give kids. And none of those things that I just said had anything to do with dogs, had anything to do with, um, you know, fixing my discomfort. It's just saying, how do I get comfortable with feeling confident that I can handle this? And I know you had someone talk about bravery. And I, I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, listen to her podcast as well. <laughs> you know, that, that helps you kind of get these phrases and things that you can use to help them feel that they can handle these situations instead of feeling like they have to run away from them. Right. That was Margie Warrell. She, yeah, she talks about bravery and being courage, having courage and trying new things and taking risks. Absolutely. And then the other self-talk that you can use when, when they're actually practicing and doing exposures is using the self-talk about facing and approaching these things. So, you know, today I'm going to go outside my comfort zone. And when I face my fear, I get more free. Um, I'll praise myself for being willing to come willing to confront this fear. The more I practice, the easier this will get. And if they they need those phrases to come from you, because they're not going to get to those on their own. Um, And again, I would say use it in their words so that they can keep internalizing it and start using that dialogue when you're not there. So that's what I often do with kids is we use these phrases and I have them write them down on a little note card and kind of put it somewhere with them so that if I'm not with them or if their parents aren't with them, they can refer back to it and they can read it over and they can kind of talk themselves through it uh, when they have those situations that they're struggling with. So as a parent in that situation, would I say is this a good time for you to get your note cards out or how would we prompt them to start using these phrases? Yeah, you could definitely do that. You could say, you know, let's get our note cards out. You could just, you know, if you're there with them, you could say some of the phrases to them or you could say, hey, I think now's a good time to use one of your self-talk phrases or whatever you call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes people use a code word. So they'll say, you know, every time we say mangoes, like we're going to think about our, you know, strength or something mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. um, Sometimes it's just trying to decide between you and your child, like when we are in these moments, how we can communicate about it so that we know this is kind of what our goal is. And I think that's another step for you and your child to be on the same page about what the goals are. Because if your child is in their head still thinking, my goal is to never feel uncomfortable. And my goal Mm. is to make sure I never see a dog. We need to make sure that they understand that those goals actually aren't going to help them and that they have to shift to different kinds of goals. Um, You know, the goal being I'm going to tolerate or I'm going to try to do things that are hard. Um, I'm not going to always know what's going to happen, but I can get through it. You know, like they, they need to know from you, like, what are the expectations and what are the goals that we're all working on? Mm, these are so important and I love your scripting and the, all of those great lines that we can give to our kids and, and knowing I'm sure that they need to be lines that come out of their own mouths, that they're words that they would say so that it's not in the language of an adult if the child is young or, you know, and they wouldn't say it that way. How right. would you, how would you encourage yourself, right? It's how, how that 
individual child would say these words to themselves. Yeah, and I also, I have a nice list that I found. I, I'd love to give the resource, but I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, but I have a nice list of some of these phrases. And um, what I do is I have the child read them and I say, highlight the ones that sit with you or, or show me the ones that you like. And, and yeah, put it in your own words so that it feels good to you. Um, so yeah, that's a great point. Okay, hopefully I can get some of those from you and we'll put them in the show notes so that people can see them and use them. And, and maybe even it's, it could be five, it could be eight, but it doesn't need to be an exhaustive list. Right. We can yep. put some down and then have, have our listeners take a look at them and hand them to their child. And, you know, it sounds like these are, this is a great tool, not just for a child who has an actual phobia, but a child who has a fear, a fear of the dark, a fear of, you know, whatever it might be that might not cause them so much discomfort that they can't interact with life, but that is continual and, and is something that they, they deal with over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Okay, so out of everything that we've talked about, what is the top tip that you would want parents and educators to come away with from this podcast? Well, I'm probably going to be repeating myself, but I, I think the biggest thing is the parent or the educator has to understand what isn't maintaining this anxiety or this fear of phobia, and what are the things that are keeping us stuck, and what are the actual long-term goals? What do we want to be teaching our child? What skills do they need to learn? Because when the adults themselves are having kind of the goals that are going to maintain the phobia, then we're not able to assist our child. We're not mm. able to teach them the, the direction that we want them to go in. And, and often adults get frustrated because they're like, why isn't this getting better? And it's like, well, I don't know that we're addressing the right thing. Um, so obviously really knowing about the goals. And I, I think this concept of shifting from wanting comfort, wanting to fix things, wanting to feel good all the time, shifting it to bravery, shifting it to resilience and courage and facing these things that are difficult. And I've heard it over and over again from people, and I know on your podcast as well, that we want kids to be able to handle difficult situations versus not letting them have any difficult situations ever to learn from. Oh, bingo. Yes, absolutely. That's why we want to have these conversations with them. That's why we want to prepare them. That's why we want to do the things that we do. And I just want to underscore what you said, that we're not trying to get rid of the fear for our child. We are not trying to make this easier for them by accommodating. We're trying to help them have the coping skills so that they can better face their fears not to get rid of them, but so that they can operate in life and and thrive and be involved in all the things that they want to do with their lives. Yeah, and, and you also have to have confidence in your own child's abilities to cope because we have to show them that confidence. The more confident that you are that your kid can handle it, the more confident they can be. But if we shy away from that and think, ooh, I don't know if you can do this, do you think you can handle it? Then they're going to question that too. Oh, right. And of course, kids can be so intuitive. We not, might not even be saying anything, but we might be gritting our teeth and our stomach yep. might be clenched <laughs> and they just read it. They go, uh-uh, I'm not going in there. Mm -hmm. So what's the resource of the week? What is a way for people to get more information about you? Or where would you like people to go to learn more if they were at the point where they said, oh, this information is really important and I need to, I need to get more information on this? 
So my website's the easiest way to find information about me. So it's www.drandreaumbach.com. And then the resources I often give to people specifically about phobias. So one would be my book, Conquer Your Fears and Phobias for Teens. There's also some great books that we'll list on the website for younger kids as well. And I'll give you that information. And I think the the website that I often send people to is called www.adaa.org. And that is in an organization called the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. And they have great resources and information specifically on anxiety that you can find. Um, So I always tell people if they're going to Google anything, go to ADAA because you'll get information that's accurate. Oh, this is great. This is all incredible information. I can absolutely see myself using these tools that you've provided, especially those phrases. I think those are great for any kid, and I think we'll be talking about that tonight. But I loved what you have said about making sure that we're not trying to get rid of a fear, that the goal needs to be to cope with the fear in a, in a productive way, that the goal needs to be that our child has the tools, not that we have it, not that we're trying to get rid of it, but that they have those tools so that as they grow and get older or are away from us, that they're not relying on us to solve the problem for them. So I just so appreciate everything that you said today. Thank you so much. Well, I've got my takeaways, and sweet friends, I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. Let's go to Dr. Robin Silverman's page, or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash drrobin. And if you love this podcast like I did, would you just kindly go up to iTunes, rate, review, subscribe, share? It means so much to us. It is incredibly helpful. We want to get all of these solutions that Dr. Umbach has provided today and all of our other incredible experts have provided out into the world so that people can use them. That's all the time we have for today. My fellow leaders and parents and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. So many great podcasts and show notes are right up there. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. Please remember, even on days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here, you're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy. Just remember that it's there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. I see you, I'm right there with you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. You really are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. You've been listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.